Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Membership fees apply after free trial. Cancel any time. You know what's wrong with health and fitness? You weaponize it against yourself. Why didn't you go to the gym today? You're so lazy. Ah, why did you eat that? You have no self-control. Stop it. At Beachbody, we think training and caring for your body in a way that works best for you should be about loving yourself. Let us help you without all the judgment. Here's how. Go to Beachbody.com to claim your free membership and start feeling great. This isn't the story I set out to tell. I originally had a whole story planned out about a long-forgotten serial killer, but as I write this, the world has changed dramatically in ways that just a few short weeks ago seemed unimaginable. And right now it no longer seems like the time to tell you about some deranged lady in a mental asylum who died a long time ago. That's because over the last week or so, a new killer has seized our imaginations and fundamentally changed the world as we know it. The coronavirus, aka COVID-19, is the latest deadly pandemic the world has seen. It started weeks ago in China, but when news first broke about it, for at least a little while, those stories all seemed so far away. Even as I began seeing images that leaked out of the quarantined city of Hunan, with its gray empty streets looking so much like the precursor to a zombie movie, it all still seemed somehow distant. And that with me here in the comfort of my little home here in the United States, that we would all be somehow protected from the virus. But then, stories began popping up in the news about the disease spreading outside China's borders. COVID-19 cases began being reported in Japan, in France, the UK, Australia. When news broke just a few days ago that the entire country of Italy was now under public quarantine, then it began to sound more and more like something to be genuinely concerned about. At the time I'm writing this, here in the good old USA, the government's response has seemed woefully inadequate. Tom Hanks and his wife, Rita Wilson, caught the virus. Cities around the country are closing everything. Broadway has gone dark for the first time since after 9-11. They postponed the NBA season. Same goes for the NHL, the NCAA playoffs, and the start of the baseball season. Schools are closing. Concerts, sci-fi conventions, and other large gatherings of people are being canceled everywhere. They even closed Disneyland and Disney World. But I'm not going to sit here and rehash current news, which I have no doubt will have changed even more by the time you're hearing this. This is still a history podcast after all, and a dark history podcast at that. And the history of this story has yet to be fully written. But the current situation with the coronavirus does have some eerie parallels to another global pandemic that occurred just over a century ago. One of the current refrains you'll hear again and again about COVID-19 is that it's just like a bad flu. 
and the majority of people who catch it manage to fully recover from it. Whereas that is true to some degree, to dismiss this current pandemic as no big deal is to forget history. Global outbreaks of disease have never been no big deal. And even today, influenza kills thousands of people each year. But a century ago, in the waning days of the First World War, a perfect storm of events occurred that brought about one of the deadliest pandemics in history. I'm of course talking about the Spanish influenza outbreak of 1918. And back then, it infected a third of the people on Earth. I'm Nate Hale, reminding everyone to wash your damn hands. And this is The Conspirators. On February 21st, 1917, a British private named Harry Underdown died in a French field hospital. Being as this death occurred at the height of World War I, you'd likely assume he died of injuries sustained in battle. But you'd be wrong. The 20-year-old private was the latest victim of what was then described as widespread bronchopneumonia. But it turns out that Private Underdown might also be one of the first victims of the so-called Spanish flu. He was born on his family's farm in Kent in 1897. When war broke out, Harry was initially reluctant to enlist. But in 1915, he changed his tune and went off to fight. But even that took some time to accomplish. At first, Harry was placed in the Army Reserve, which meant he got to return to his family farm and wait to be called to active duty. His moment came in April 1916 when he was sent for training at an Army depot. But within four months, Harry had fallen ill and was hospitalized with tonsillitis. Harry briefly recovered, but then he relapsed and he wasn't discharged from the hospital until August of that year. Harry never had much luck during his military career. Just a few weeks after being discharged, he was sent to France where he became yet another casualty of war. When he got caught in heavy shelling from German explosives. Harry wasn't injured, not physically at least, but he did suffer from the nervous mental condition doctors referred to back then as shell shock. He returned to England for a few months to recuperate and regain his wits about him. But it was after Harry was sent back to France in February of 1917 that he was struck down once again. This time by a powerful bronchopneumonia that came on so rapidly and filled his lungs with so much fluid that he began to develop heliotropic cyanosis. Or in other words, Harry's body became so deprived of oxygen that he turned black and blue right before he died. Doctors in the field hospital were alarmed by the growing number of cases they were seeing of this particular strain of bronchopneumonia. When they did autopsies on the lungs of the men struck down by the rapid onset of the disease, they were shocked to see how quickly those lungs had become loaded with a thick yellowish pus. Although doctors in 1917 had a better idea of how influenza worked than physicians from generations past, there was still much about the disease that remained a mystery to them. For one thing, doctors at that time did not realize that influenza was caused by a virus. Rather, they believed it to be caused by bacteria, and as such, that was how they attempted to treat the flu outbreak. By that point in time, great strides had been made in modern medicine with the development of vaccines to combat rabies, diphtheria, 
and other infectious diseases. So by the time alarm bells were raised about the flu pandemic, doctors rushed to create a flu vaccine. But because doctors back then still had such limited knowledge of viruses and because the microscopes that were available up to that point weren't powerful enough to actually see viruses, they created the vaccine based on the bacteria they could see instead. As a result, the vaccines they produced turned out to be completely ineffective. Although physicians throughout history may not have known exactly what caused influenza, they knew full well about the devastating impact it could have on society. Hippocrates wrote about an apparent influenza epidemic in Greece in 412 BC. Similar outbreaks were also written about by ancient Roman healers at about the same time. During the 15th century, the disease was referred to in England as a myrrh, or sometimes the English sweat, because of the symptoms associated with it. The actual word influenza dates back to Italy around 1500, when the Italians coined the term in referring to the influence they thought the stars had on causing diseases. It would take a couple more centuries before doctors began to realize that diseases were not caused by foul air and floating gas clouds known as miasmas, but rather because of tiny, living organisms. In May 1743, an influenza outbreak killed thousands in London. It was after that time that the term influenza began to be widely used. Other influenza epidemics would sweep across Europe. In 1831, the first of three waves of the mass epidemic swept across Paris, Britain, and Ireland. The final wave that struck in 1837 claimed 3,000 lives in Dublin alone. In 1847, another deadly influenza outbreak claimed over 5,000 lives in London. That particular outbreak occurred over a period of six weeks. Most of the victims died of pneumonia, bronchitis, and other respiratory ailments. Between 1889 to 1891, a particularly deadly strain of influenza that came to be known as the Russian flu, which was a poor choice of names considering it likely originated in southern China, killed over a quarter million people in America alone. The Russian flu also spread throughout Latin America and Asia, killing hundreds of thousands more. After 1894, there were no more major flu epidemics reported around the world until Spanish flu took the world by storm in 1918. By January 1918, the world was still engaged in the Great War, the largest global conflict in history up to that time. The ultimate death toll for World War I was somewhere around 38 million people, but during the final year of the war, an outbreak of H1N1 influenza would go on to kill more people than died in the war. Casualties were reported on every continent on the planet. 10 to 20% of the infected died. The number of dead is widely reported as somewhere between 20 to 50 million people, although it's possible that number could actually be as high as 100 million people worldwide. But we'll never know for sure due to poor record-keeping. As I'm sure you're aware, flu outbreaks are nothing out of the ordinary. They occur each year and vary in severity. In the United States, the flu season typically runs from late fall into spring. Each year, more than 200,000 Americans are hospitalized from flu-related symptoms, resulting in anywhere from 3,000 to 49,000 deaths annually. But the influenza strain from 1918 had a few key differences from other flu epidemics. Although physicians today have studied infected tissue samples taken from the graves of Spanish flu victims, 
and have learned a lot more about how the virus worked, there's still a lot about the 1918 flu that remains unknown. For example, most flu epidemics tend to hit the very young and very old the hardest. In other words, people with the weakest immune systems. But for some reason, the Spanish flu tended to strike down young, healthy adults between the ages of 20 and 30 more than any other age group. Also, for some reason, the flu proved especially deadly to pregnant women in that same age bracket. The Spanish flu also occurred outside the typical flu season, which usually occurs during the colder months of the year. But instead, this flu strain attacked with a vengeance during the warm summer months. Something else we don't know for certain is where the virus actually originated from. One thing we can say with relative certainty is that the so-called Spanish flu didn't originate in Spain. The name Spanish flu actually comes because Spain was one of the few countries that remained neutral throughout World War I. And something else the Spanish did that was unlike other countries was that their press did not adhere to the sort of mandatory censorship that was prevalent throughout many other countries that did fight in the war. As a result, when Spain began reporting first on the rapidly growing number of influenza cases, news spread quickly around the world. And many people began falsely blaming Spain as being ground zero of the epidemic. From there, it didn't take long for the name Spanish flu, or the Spanish lady as it's sometimes known, to catch on. One theory about the virus's origins goes that it was brought over by the thousands of Chinese immigrants who traveled to the Western world working as laborers. This theory is largely based on the possibly mistaken belief that China wasn't hit all that hard by the 1918 influenza outbreak. To some researchers, this is an indication that these Chinese laborers had developed some natural immunity to the virus and instead became carriers of the disease throughout Europe and the U.S. There's another theory that says the virus actually began in the United States in the spring of 1918 at Fort Riley, Kansas. It was there that soldiers were ordered to burn tons of manure left over by the pigs and other livestock they kept to feed the troops. On March 9, 1918, a huge gale kicked up, sending an enormous stinking yellow cloud into the sky. The dust storm that followed was so thick it blotted out the sun. Two days later, the first army private reported to the camp hospital early, complaining it wasn't feeling well. He had a fever, sore throat, and a headache. You know, your typical flu symptoms. But then, just minutes later, another private showed up with the same symptoms. And another, and another, and another after that. By noon, the Army hospital had over 100 cases. That number would balloon to 500 by the week's end. Of that group, 48 young, healthy soldiers died at Fort Riley. The official cause of death was reported as pneumonia. Many of the remaining soldiers from the base were then shipped off to Europe. It seems highly likely some of those Kansas doughboys carried the virus with them. Almost immediately, soldiers in Europe began reporting flu-like symptoms. The worst of these resulted in a severe and deadly form of pneumonia. And as the virus spread throughout the English, French, and German soldiers, it continued to mutate and become even more deadly over time. Then, as many soldiers began shipping home, they brought back with them a plague the rest of the world was completely unprepared for. By September, reports began emerging that 63 soldiers at Boston's Camp Devons had died. Army physicians were baffled by how quickly these young men had been struck down. Some of them had appeared perfectly healthy by morning and were dead by nightfall. Autopsies revealed lungs that were filled with fluid 
and had turned a dusky shade of blue. It took some time for the public at large to become fully aware that this wasn't just a disease affecting soldiers, but that everyone they knew and loved could be at risk. On September 11th, reports began to come in from Quincy, Massachusetts, that something was terribly wrong. That was when three civilians dropped dead right in the middle of a busy city sidewalk. From Boston, the flu spread all across the eastern seaboard. Cases began being reported in New York, New Jersey, and Philadelphia. And it just kept spreading from there. As many as 25 million people are believed to have died during the first 25 weeks of the epidemic. This was more people than were killed by the Black Death. And yet, in the early days of the epidemic, most government officials actively tried to downplay fears about the flu in order to avoid a panic. Royal Copeland, the health commissioner of New York City, made a public announcement that there was nothing to fear and that people should carry on with their daily lives as normal. Remember, the Great War was still going on at the time, and that meant recruitment drives were still happening across the country. That September, 13 million young men were called in to register for the draft. That meant in towns and cities throughout the U.S., you had schoolhouses, city halls, and other public buildings packed shoulder to shoulder with young recruits breathing in the same air. To make matters worse, on September 28, 1918, about 200,000 people crammed together along the sidewalks of Philadelphia to watch a two-mile-long parade. At the time, it was billed as the city's largest parade ever, and it was meant to drum up support for the war. Military planes flew overhead, and anxious war bond salesmen worked the crowds. The city's health commissioner, Wilmer Crusen, had been alerted to the possible dangers posed by the growing influenza epidemic, and had been warned he should cancel the parade. But city leaders were more concerned about boosting morale for the war effort than for public safety. As a result, Crusen allowed the parade to go on anyway, and within three days, every bed in the city's 31 hospitals was filled to capacity. Within a week, more than 45,000 residents of the city were infected with influenza. The entire city ground to a halt as schools shut down. Pool halls stood empty, and the usually bustling city streets were abandoned. Within six weeks, more than 12,000 people were dead. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Although some municipalities began to catch on and ban large public events after that, many others refused to heed the warnings. There was a popular evangelist at the time named Billy Sunday who held a large rally during which he preached the true cause of the epidemic was sin. But while he spoke, several of his audience members began to collapse from the disease. Across the country, urgent warnings began spreading that as many able-bodied men were available would be needed to perform a new duty taking care of the dead. Woodworkers in every state began building makeshift coffins, and when there weren't enough coffins to go around, mass graves were being dug. Some towns and cities began telling people to leave their dead on the street in front of their homes, and someone would come by to collect the bodies in the morning. Quarantine signs began being posted everywhere, but it was too little too late. 
Even back in 1918, people were too interconnected. Sure, you could try to remain sequestered inside your home, but then your local mailman might show up at your front door infected with the virus. Hospitals everywhere became packed to overcapacity. Makeshift emergency relief shelters sprang up under tents in parks and playgrounds. There was also an additional problem with the fact that the vast majority of doctors and nurses had been sent to Europe. The ones that remained were overburdened with an unsustainable load of fresh patients each day. Many doctors reached a breaking point where they had to begin to pick and choose who lived and who died. A second, even more highly contagious wave spread rapidly throughout the late summer and fall of that year. An estimated 17 million people died in India. 2% of Africa's entire population was wiped out. In Tanzania alone, 10% of the population died from the flu. This was followed by a deadly famine that killed thousands more. In the United States, the official death toll sits around half a million people. Although a combination of inaccurate record-keeping and censorship might be making that number artificially low as well. Death rates varied wildly in different groups. There were entire communities of Native Americans who were wiped off the map by the flu. In Europe, it's estimated around 70,000 American soldiers became sick. Some units saw casualty rates as high as 80%. General John Pershing put out the call for reinforcements, but at the same time that meant packing more bodies onto troop ships that could potentially spread the virus more. President Woodrow Wilson was briefed on the situation and made the call allowing the ships to keep sailing. It's difficult to say what's more terrifying about the Spanish flu, how quickly it managed to spread from person to person, or what happened to the victims who caught the disease. In a typical case of the flu, the virus incubates in the host for anywhere from 24 hours to 4 or 5 days before the symptoms begin to show. And although most people will feel miserable from the fever, chills, and bronchial issues, generally with some liquids and bed rest, the person recovers in a few days or so. But in many cases, the Spanish flu proved to be far more aggressive. During the horrifying second wave of the epidemic that began in the summer of 1918, people began collapsing and dying in the streets. Blood and fluid would hemorrhage from the lungs and nose. As a victim's lungs filled with pus, they would turn cyanotic, their skin turning dark blue as they died, gasping for air. It was a horrible way to die. And yet you were lucky if you died quickly. The ones who lingered suffered from projectile vomiting and diarrhea, and many of them died in the grip of madness as their brains became starved for oxygen. Many people who recovered from the epidemic were never the same again. They suffered for the rest of their lives with a whole host of neurological problems. Many doctors and nurses worked tirelessly to care for the sick and often fell prey to the virus themselves. Nurses who worked on the Western Front often recounted horrifying tales of having to deal with stacks of dark blue putrescent corpses, in addition to all the usual battle injuries. And yet despite horrific accounts like these, some epidemiologists today insist that the 1918 strain of H1N1 influenza wasn't actually any worse than many modern strains of the virus. One modern hypothesis suggests that many of the deaths attributed to the Spanish flu were actually the result of attempts to treat the illness. Namely, that many doctors accidentally overdosed their patients on aspirin, which was one of the only drugs they had at their disposal to help patients' fevers. 
Back in 1918, medical authorities often prescribed up to 30 grams of aspirin a day. Today, the maximum safe dose is thought to be around 4 grams. Large overdoses of aspirin could actually explain many of the symptoms people experienced, including excess bleeding. However, it's also been pointed out that death rates remained high in places where aspirin wasn't readily available, which would seem to discredit this theory. Throughout Europe and the United States, other tragic stories emerged about other unseen consequences of the Spanish flu. Young children sometimes starved to death after both parents succumbed to the flu. In Chicago, a man cut the throats of his wife and four children when he began to believe it was his only option. In New York alone, hundreds of children ended up in orphanages. Across the globe, entire cities became ghost towns. There probably isn't a graveyard on earth from that time that doesn't contain at least a few individuals who died from the Spanish flu. The month of October became the deadliest on record. Nearly 200,000 Americans died in that month alone. It was the single deadliest month in the nation's history. Coffins became in such high demand that thieves began breaking into mortuaries to steal them. Armed guards had to be posted to protect them. Soon the normal order of society began to break down. Schools and churches closed, as well as factories, restaurants, and farms across the country. People everywhere began wearing masks out in public. Although, in retrospect, it's believed that the masks that would have been available back then would have been highly ineffective against the tiny flu particles people were breathing in and out. Things began to grow so out of hand with wearing the masks that in San Francisco, a health department inspector shot a man who refused to wear one. Because of the high death rate among the troops, the Surgeon General of the Army, Victor Vaughn, was put in charge of overseeing the military response to the epidemic. By the end of October, he had come to a sobering conclusion. If the virus continued to spread at the current rate of acceleration, the math showed it becoming an extinction-level event for the entire human race within months. But then, by the following month, something remarkable began to occur. The number of flu cases began to fall dramatically. By early November, almost no new cases were reported in Boston, Philadelphia, and New York. There would be a third wave of the flu that occurred the following spring, but it wasn't as deadly as the second wave in the fall. And following that, no more cases were reported at all. The armistice officially ended World War I on November 11th. It's possible the third wave could be attributed to that group of soldiers returning home. But, in any case, by the following year, there were no more unusual cases of the flu being reported. One chilling theory goes that the real reason the death stopped was because this particular strain of the flu actually killed everyone on Earth that it could. The survivors were those who had developed an immunity to the disease. Conservative estimates state that over half a million Americans died in 10 months. That's more Americans than died in all the wars of the 20th century combined. It's estimated that at least 30 million people died around the world and it infected the majority of the human race. There have, of course, been other major disease outbreaks around the world in the century that's passed since the Spanish flu of 1918. None of which has been as disruptive to global society as that of the COVID-19 outbreak we're all living in today. It's still too early yet to say what the far-reaching implications of the coronavirus will be or how it will go down in history. 
But if you stuck with me this long, I'm sure you'll have seen some obvious parallels between 1918 and today. At the same time, there is plenty of reason to remain hopeful. Most experts agree that 70-80% to of the people who contract COVID-19 will show little or no symptoms at all. And even then, the vast majority of people do recover. At the same time, that doesn't mean we shouldn't remain cautious. We need to do all the stuff I'm sure you've heard over and over again. Wash your hands, avoid crowds, stock up in supplies. But at the same time, leave some toilet paper for the rest of us. And if you really think you may have the disease, do what you can to get tested. No doubt there will be more deaths in the days to come, but also be aware that in China and elsewhere, reports are showing the virus already being contained and, for some locations, the worst may already be passing. News about the coronavirus is changing every day, and no doubt by the time you hear this, it will have changed once again. If there is any moral to be taken from the events of 1918, it's that although it seemed as if, for a time, the world was falling apart, remember that it didn't. And eventually, everything got back to normal. Believe it or not, despite the dark and sometimes depressing subject matter I like to discuss on this show, I'm actually a major optimist. I think we'll weather through this global crisis as we've done in the past. Schools will reopen. People will start going out in public again. And eventually things will get back to some semblance of normal. The one common thing history has shown us about pandemics is that eventually, all of them end. Just mere weeks after the mass number of deaths occurred in the fall of 1918, people were back out in the streets in mass numbers celebrating the return of the troops from overseas. Sometimes the end of a pandemic can be messy, but in the aftermath, people move on. They develop physical immunities. Many learn from their mistakes and, somewhat ironically, find new ways to come together. Or, to quote my favorite fictional mathematician, life, uh uh-uh, finds a way. The Conspirators is written and produced by me, Nate Hale, and Entirely Fictional Identity. I have a few new Patreon supporters to thank. Thank you so much to Rebecca, Christine, Kathy, and Colleen. I really appreciate all your support. Just a reminder, you can find us on all the major social media platforms, including Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. If you're cooped up in your house and you have a few moments, I ask you to subscribe, rate, and review us on Apple Podcasts as well. Each one of your ratings and reviews helps boost us in Apple's magical algorithms and boost us in Apple's charts. Feel free to reach out to us on any of our social media or shoot me an old-fashioned email at theconspiratorspodcast at gmail.com. I'd love to hear from you. Thanks again for joining us, and I hope you'll be back next time. Stay safe, my friends.